So Money, episode 297, Todd Tarabi. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Tarabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Creating opportunities by starting your own business is one of the most empowering things you can do for yourself. However, it can also be overwhelming at times. The secret to getting more done isn't about finding more time, but rather finding the right tools. Our friends at FreshBooks couldn't agree more. FreshBooks has created an amazingly simple invoicing tool designed for small business owners who need to focus on their work, not their paperwork. Oh, and invoicing is only the start. FreshBooks lets you know instantly when your client has viewed your invoice and even imports your expenses directly from your business checking account. Get ready to say goodbye to searching for receipts when it comes to tax time. If you do have questions, just contact the award-winning FreshBooks support team and get help from real live humans. No phone tree, no let me escalate that, just helpful service at the drop of a hat. To try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, just go to freshbooks.com forward slash so money and enter so money in the how did you hear about us section. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Well, ahead of introducing today's wonderful guest, I have to quickly share with you the charity fundraiser and competition that's going to be going on all month here at So Money, the entire month of November, in tandem with a charity fundraiser forward slash competition going on with Josal Sihai's podcast, Stacking Benjamins. And to tell us all about that, I brought on Joe. And Joe, here you go. What, take the mic. You, you invited me onto this little fundraiser of yours, and I'm I'm excited, but also a little nervous. Partners, I'm way excited that we're doing this together. You know, uh, we can raise a bunch of money for charity. And I love this at the end of the year with Thanksgiving. For people in the United States, we end the month of November with uh, Thanksgiving. And I thought, what a great way for our community to help another community that might need it. So we are going to be raising money for the Texas 4000, which is a 4,000 mile bike ride that University of Texas students take to raise money for cancer research and, and cancer-related causes. Uh, I know that they give a lot of money to MD Anderson Hospital, one of the premier uh, cancer treatment clinics in the United States in Houston, Texas. And then they also give it to worthwhile uh, research facilities around the nation. So we're going to be raising money at, at, at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas 4000. And it's cool because our organization, Farnoosh, has a lot in terms of where the money goes, a lot in common with who you're raising money yes. for. Talk about that for a minute. Well, thank you. That was a nice transition. So I have chosen, our team here at So Money has chosen the largest student-run philanthropy in the world, near and dear to my heart as well, because I was a part of this when I was in college. It's the Penn State IFC Panhellenic Dance Marathon. It's affectionately known as THON, and it's a year-long effort to raise money and awareness for the fight against pediatric cancers. It's raised over $125 million for the Four Diamonds Fund at Penn State Hershey Children's Hospital. And next year's THON 2016 is what we are fundraising for now. And that will be taking place February 19th through the 21st. It's a 46-hour dance marathon. I did it and I survived. It was uh, life-altering. But of course, it's for an amazing tremendous and important cause. Thon.org forward slash so money. Thon.org forward slash so money is where you can go to contribute. I know it's high season for canning and this is a way to join in on the fun. Anything you can do, know that it will be well spent. Over 95% of funds go to the families. That's so great. And the rider that we're riding for, uh, who's riding in the Texas 4000, her name is Shelby Schreiber. Her father was a single dad raising her Farnoosh. And when she was in high school, he started feeling bad, went to the doctor. It turned out he had terminal cancer and he passed away when she was just in high school. Hmm. So here she is without a dad. And now she decided she's going to ride this 4,000 mile bike ride in honor of him. And they spend no money on the bike ride. Uh, all the food along the way, all the housing along the way is donated. So I love these organizations, yeah. but 
stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas 4000. And I hope together we can raise a lot of money. I think we will. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Today's guest is a really, really special person. He's my brother. You've heard him on the show before as he was my co-host during some of the earlier episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Todd is here. And as many of you may know, Todd and I have a very big age gap. I'm almost 11 years his senior. So you can imagine we have a special relationship. I actually remember changing many of his diapers, babysitting him and driving him to kindergarten. Both our parents worked at one point, and the only person who could take Todd to school in the morning was me. So I would actually take Todd to my first period history class, senior year of high school, and I'd have a special note that would let me leave school at 8.30 in the morning to go drop off Todd at kindergarten, then drive back to school. So you could say I was sort of single parenting at age 17, and it's not easy. Proud to say that Todd, a millennial, has gone on to achieve a great deal in his early 20s. He's currently a product designer at Petrolicious, which is a media company and award-winning film series showcasing the powerful relationship between vintage cars and their owners. This job, by the way, he received by first just emailing the founder out of the blue. Talk about guts. Todd is also a teacher. He helps run a 10-week user experience design course at the Technology School General Assembly. Some of Todd's interests include basketball and tennis. He's a diehard Patriots fan, and he's recently taken up meditation. You wouldn't know we were related based on those hobbies, except the tennis part. He and I took lessons this summer, and he kicked my butt. Some takeaways from our interview, the details of that email that Todd wrote to the founder of that company that ended up hiring him small steps he's taking to feel more purposeful and happy in his life, and the benefits to negotiating equity at your job. You know, we talk a lot about negotiating salary and health benefits, and maybe if you're at a startup, you'll want to ask for some equity, even if it is just a fraction of a percent. Outside of the monetary benefits, there are other great, great incentives to doing so. Here is Todd Tarabi. Tarabi, little brother, welcome back to So Money. It's been a long time. People have been missing you, asking for you. So here we go. Welcome, everyone. Todd. How's it going, Farnoosh? I'm glad to be back on you, So Money. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've been with me since the like before I was launching this. You've been a part of this. You developed the website for So Money Podcast in your spare time. I don't know how you did that. I was actually thinking the other day, like you were probably just doing that for me because you were trying to be nice or maybe you were scared of me because you had so much going on. And at one point we tried to involve your roommate who's also uh, a designer and he was flat out like, Farnoosh, I don't have time for this. You know, I have a real job and somehow you <laughs> yeah. worked it out quickly too. So thanks for that. I'd like to think that no you did problem. it just because you wanted to, but I probably put you under some pressure. Um, <laughs> I wanted to have you on the show because one, I think you're doing amazing work. And even though you are just 24, right, you'll be 25 in January. I think mm-hmm. you are very exemplary and, uh, kind of how you've pursued life from your career to your interests. And I think a lot of my listeners can relate because as you know, many of my listeners are the millennials and they're they're trying to take their lives from good to great. They're trying to find purpose. They're trying to do meaningful things in their personal lives and their professional lives. And I feel like you're on a journey and uh, I'm capturing you with this journey where you, I think you've grown up a lot in the last few years. You've done a lot of self-discovery and not just saying that as your sister, but as your friend and someone who's been observing you. So uh, let's start though, Todd, with, I teased this in the introduction. I teased how you landed your current job at Petrolicious, which Mm -hmm. I had no idea what Petrolicious was because I'm not a car enthusiast, but there are, turns out, lots of people who love antique cars, like Jay Leno, and and there's a website dedicated to feeding their interests. And you're a fan, you were uh, curious about the company and you just emailed the founder and yeah it was tell me about that like what made you what did that email say because we all want to create write these emails that change our lives and this email literally changed your life and the fact that it got you this job and now you're doing really impressive work with them helping them relaunch their website so -hmm. tell us about that moment like when you decided to do that and how it how you really nurtured that into what ended up being a really nice job for yourself yeah, so I think it was about almost two years ago, 
and I was in Dubai. I was working on a design project for Emirates, and I just remember I was at work and I was working on the side business with my friend, and we, you know, it had to, a lot to do with vintage cars and classic cars, and we were huge fans of Petrolicious. Like that was, you know, our favorite website, and I just remember. There was one day I was just really bored at work. Like I finished everything I needed to do. I was just sitting around, and I just uh, I was on Petrolicious, and I just thought like, what if I just email this guy? You know, I, I heard so many stories about people emailing like CEOs or founders or whatever, and and sometimes they don't answer, but if they do, I was hearing a lot of good results out of that. So I just emailed him, and I was really I didn't really come in with an agenda. I just emailed him. I, I told him how much I like his site. Um, I said that like I'm a big fan. I I talked about how our grandfather used to uh, run car dealerships back in the in the 70s, and I said that this is you know it's like really relatable to me. I also told him that uh, I'm a designer, and you know I've noticed a couple things about your website, and I'd love to you know chat with you about cars and design and you know stuff like that. So it was really casual. And what was I didn't the subject line? Because you know, often I get emails, and if, if the subject doesn't capture me, I don't even read the rest of the email. So, what did you put in the subject? Hire me? <laughs> no, it, honestly, I I kind of figured that emailing someone like that, if I'm just going in with it, into it, asking for a job, or it smells like I'm asking for a job, I feel like that would lose interest immediately for some reason. I just feel like there's probably a lot of people who you know ask to work there because it's a big passion for people. And so I came in just just appreciating what he does and, and relating to it on a more personal level, you know, mentioning like our grandparents. And then also I wanted to offer something like basically free advice. So I think in the subject line, I just said, you know, love your site. Design could improve something. Whoa, like that, that's you know? <laughs> like, that's yeah. uh, I don't know. I mean, that's you took a risk there because that's basically uh, yeah. saying like you're great, but you could be better. Yeah. And actually, I mean, he responded to it. I think any good CEO recognizes that, you know, like they're going to know that they're good, but things can always improve. And, uh, I, I just, I don't know. I was just very dry with him and I told him like, look, you're, and then, you know, I just told him like your site is great, but like, there's a lot of things that I noticed just, you know, because I'm in that profession that could improve. And so I was like, you know, let's chat sometime. And uh, long story short, yeah. that turned into a job that you're currently working on. The site is it relaunched already? Yeah, so it's gonna it, it's public now, and you know you guys can check it out. Petrolicious.com. <laughs> well, right, and so it, this it, this was a super long process. I mean, um, you know, from the beginning, it was just like a really brief chat about his website and what could improve. And then, you know, meanwhile, my friend and I had this side business we were working on that had to do with vintage cars. So it was a little bit delicate. You know, we, we didn't really want to expose too much of what we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of just, you know, it, it was stressful. <laughs> just like this relationship was, it slowly evolved into this, you know, partnership. This partnership. Right. Yeah. So we're working on our, we're still working on our side business and, and we're, you know, going to use um, their resources and their brand to grow. Mm-hmm. Our business, and then you know, in exchange, I I design redesign their website and and work on their digital marketing and stuff like that. So, that's amazing. That's a lesson learned. And then I want to even go back a little earlier to when you graduated from college. You went to the University of Arizona, and you were before you graduated, you were doing these job searches, career, uh, like, I guess, fairs. And what was the Mm -hmm. feedback you were getting from, from recruiters? I mean, you were majoring in economics, which is not um, a light subject. It's something that you would think is a degree that could get you lots of job opportunities in the economy. Uh, But they kept telling you that you didn't have skills, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, even, I guess, like, I was good at selling myself because <laughs> I was getting internships that I really wasn't qualified for. I mean, I, I didn't really have any hard skills. And when I got into these internships, because, you know, either I had uh, like a good interview or whatever it was, um, I, I really struggled during those internships. And um, I think it just brought to light that, you know, a lot of what I was learning in college was somewhat theoretical, somewhat conceptual. And Unfortunately, in, in my business program, there wasn't much exposure to like hard skills, you know, things that you could really 
work on and, and be really good at, mm-hmm. um, in a specific way. And so, you know, and yeah, I did study economics and I was trying to do finance, but th- then I realized like, I actually, I don't really like doing much of this, um, like on a professional level. So I was always into design and, and, you know, I just was more interested in doing something a little bit more creative. And so, you know, after college, I knew I needed to learn something like a skill that I, you know, that made me, that could make me stand out in some way, you know, rather than just being an idea man, I wanted to be someone who could make something. Which is, which would you agree is what a lot of times college turns out is idea people and not skill driven or skill, skillful people. And that's where the internships supplement your education and make you marketable as someone who can, you know, hit the ground running when you graduate from college, but really does, I think, highlight the importance of thinking of college as a return on your investment. Because here you are, a smart, bright, likable guy who's getting these interviews and getting these internships, but ultimately when it comes to hiring you full-time, these companies are thinking, well, what's Todd's skill set? Because at that level, at that entry level, they're not hiring you to make big decisions and be thoughtful. They want you to run Excel sheets. They want you to make PowerPoint presentations. They want you, you know, it's, it's entry level work that requires uh, you to like move and do things. And, um, Mm -hmm. and so you had to then continue your education after college because of that. And tell us what you did. Yes. So I think it just, after my uh, finance internship in New York, I I realized that I, I don't really want to continue uh, working in that industry. And so I was thinking, okay, what could I do? I was in an entrepreneurship program at school and that, and I, I got exposed to design and technology and like the startup world. And I, I was really interested. Um, and there's this program in New York that your husband <laughs> also worked for yes. as a developer. And I heard it through him too. And it, it's basically, it's called general assembly and they're all around the United States now. They're in almost every major city. Um, and they offer like really practical, uh, hard skills, specifically in the technology industry. And design was probably the sector that appealed to me the most. And I was thinking, you know, like I love the idea of like creating an app or creating a website. Like it just, there's so much into it that, that interested me. And then I, I learned a little bit more about it. I got a couple interviews there and actually I was, I was part of their first design program ever. Like it was kind of their trial period. It was 10 weeks. It was this really arduous boot camp of like learning how to design apps and websites. It was probably 60 to 70 hours a week of just constant movement of creating things. And it was really hands-on and it was just such a different environment than what I was exposed to at school. You know, like you're, you go to class, you go to lecture, you know, half the students don't even show up. It's just kind of, I mean, I went to U of A, so it's it's somewhat of a party school, but hey, <laughs> <laughs> so, I went to like, Penn State. Yeah, yeah, but I think hmm, more schools should do that. I think put you under the pressure in the pressure cooker, you know, and and bring the real life into the classroom, which is basically what you got at General Assembly. And but then also maybe it was the timing too. You at that point kind of had realized what it was you wanted to do, and fortunately there was a program that supported that. Now, as you are making the rounds and climbing the ranks in your 20s and trying to get experience and different job uh, experience, you had like kind of a philosophical dilemma that I recently learned about that you then shared with the world on Medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how I learn about you now. I have to like read about what you're writing and then I learn what's <laughs> going on in your head. But you re- you had this, uh, this sort of epiphany that it turns out really captures the zeitgeist of the millennial right now, which is that uh, everything is not enough. And while you, you, and I say you with a capital U, your generation was raised generally with a lot of accolades, with a lot of praise, true, true or false. When you, if you didn't win the basketball game, you still got a trophy. Yeah, that's true. Probably I true. Think so you grow up with this yeah. like expectation that life is abundant and that you're going to get everything. And then maybe you do get everything and it's still not enough as your title said. So talk about this self-reflection that you've had over the last couple of years and how you see your purpose in life as opposed to what you thought it was. Mm-hmm. I think it's very complicated. I don't think that it's just because, uh, like in, in my generation, I mean, yeah, I think we were raised a little bit differently. Uh, we, we were rewarded for things that maybe we shouldn't have been <laughs> rewarded for, you know? Uh, so yeah, it certainly built a whole 
stack of expectations on ourselves. But I think the biggest thing that I notice in my generation is that there's this anxiety that we're not living up to a certain standard. I think we believe in ourselves and I think we're very highly capable, especially in this economy where, you know, some of the youngest people are running companies, right? And I don't think it's by accident. I think it's because we, we grew up with this exposure to technology and we grew up with computers. And so naturally, I think we're more skilled and we understand the opportunities a little bit better than, than maybe someone in previous generations. So I think with that knowledge and just with the high expectations, I think there's a lot of just, I think people in my, in my generation are just a little bit anxious. They don't feel like they're good enough sometimes or they're not doing enough sometimes. And for me, I, you know, from a higher perspective, I think like, okay, I see what I've been doing in these last couple of years and I feel like, okay, I, I've actually done a lot. You know, I've like, I'm proud of the stuff that I've been doing since college, but for some reason it didn't really, you know, it wasn't making me happy fulfilling? on a deeper level. Yeah. I guess fulfilling is the right word. Um, I was never really satisfied with anything. And I, and I, I think at, at a certain point, especially like helping run a company, it's, there's a lot of pressure on you and it's very result oriented. And, um, I think at, at some point you just burn out, you know, and it, I think it depends on your environment or how much you're working. But I think for me personally, I just burnt out a little bit and, uh, I started thinking, you know, well, why did I burn out? And you know, what motivates me? Why, why, mm-hmm. <laughs> why was I, what was I like, what am I doing this in the first place for? You know, was it because I like to be creative or is it, was there some other agenda going on? Um, and so I think, when you, I, I think it's probably the first time in my life I've ever, ever thought that way. You know, just um, started to rethink a lot of what motivated me and and why I got involved with the things I did, and you know, just evaluating my own expectations of myself and trying to understand a little bit better of of how I, you know, where what where's my role in, yeah. in a lot of these kind of things. And I don't think it's a millennial yeah. thing. I think I think every generation at the stage that you're at, you know, the life stage, the early Mm -hmm. 20s, the young professional, you sort of are, you're like thrown into the real world like you're, you've been bolted out of a cannon, you know, (laughs) like you just have to hit the ground running and you feel like you're just doing things to do things. And because it seems like the right opportunity, other people are encouraging you to do things. And then you hit a point where you're like, wait a minute, what if, what of all these things that I'm doing, am I really doing for myself? And that question mm-hmm. never really occurs to you as even a question that you have the privilege to ask yourself until mm-hmm. you do. And I think that's a it's a brave thing to ask yourself that it's a it's even braver to pursue it. And I think seeing you now like actually do taking small steps. So the lesson for everybody is if you feel like you're in this position where you're doing what seems to be all the right things on paper, but you don't feel fulfilled. Perhaps it's because you're not really fulfilling your needs and your wants. So what is that? Do that self-discovery. And in the process, Todd, you've done simple things like you've taken Mm -hmm. up certain sports. You've been dedicating a little bit of your day to meditation. So talk Mm -hmm. about like the little steps that have been helping you with this bigger journey. I think it's, you know, it, it might sound cliche, but I just started thinking a lot about, okay, when I was younger, like what did I really enjoy doing? And a lot of times that's a really good way of finding out what you're just naturally attracted to. You know, like for me, I was always involved with sports, um, you know, like basketball whether or football or whatever it was. And I was ignoring that for a long time, you know, so I got back into like rec leagues. I started playing more basketball, you know, I picked up tennis, um, you know, and then another part is just like, I, I've always been, even in, you know, in high school, like I, you know, I was really into film and that was my way of creative expression, you know, and it, that's super important to me. And I, and I, I also was ignoring that for a while. You know, I, I didn't have this kind of hobby to creatively express myself. You know, I, I, I never wrote anything. So I started getting into that. Um, also it's, it, a lot of it is just, so I got into meditating a lot because I, I started reading a lot of, you know, self-help books and, <laughs> Uh, you know, listening to like psychologists and, you know, and because, you know, I was in a period where I was very unsure about what I was feeling. You know, I, I didn't, I couldn't really pinpoint what it meant for me. Um, and a lot of, a, a lot of the questions that were coming up is like, okay, what am I doing that's purposeful? What is bringing me meaning, you know, and stuff like, and it's a very hard question to answer, right? There's not really one answer. Um, 
And I think a lot of times when you can take a step back from everything, when you can meditate, when you can just take 10 minutes out of your day to just like breathe, um, it, it recontextualizes a lot of your problems. You know, when you're caught up in it and you're, and you're caught up in your thinking and you start worrying about what you're thinking and worrying about the future, um, it really complicates an otherwise pretty simple dilemma in your life, you know? And I think what meditating has done for me in the last year is that it's, it's helped me become more patient. Um, it's, it's totally changed my awareness of how I think about things. And I don't, I don't get so emotional about things. I don't, I don't really react as much to anything as much as I used to. Um, and I mean, aside from just the activity itself of, of being more aware of yourself, I think there's a lot of evidence that, you know, people who meditate regularly, uh, you know, their, their brains actually become restructured to use more areas of higher thinking and, and happiness. Uh, and so, you know, scientifically there's a lot of proof that this works and it's just, it was really fascinating to me because I was seeing the results, you know, <laughs> like I was experiencing yeah? it. Yeah, quickly, right? Yeah, not quickly. I, I the, That's the thing. Like people start do, meditating and they don't see results and they get frustrated, right? Uh, and um, I think that's when people just kind of give up on it. But I think it takes about two months, three months to really see results. And, you know, for me, I, it's it's been so effective and like I, I've been able to just think a little bit more clearly about things. Um, I actually enjoy my job more. I don't think as much about the future. Um, you know, and obviously you can't stop thinking about things, right? That's not really the point. It's more about your like relationship with what you're thinking. So like if I'm, if I'm thinking about my future, you know, I'm like, okay, how's my company going to do, you know, do I have to make this trip to LA at some point, whatever it may be, right? Like I don't freak out about it. <laughs> you know, it mm -hmm. just becomes, it just becomes something you think about and you're like, okay, that's something I'll deal with. You know, yes. you, you just gain more confidence about this kind of worrying rather than getting caught up in it and ma allowing it to ruin your day. Right. I think that's the biggest um, improvement I've seen. Yeah. So, so I heard this metaphor one time where you think of, you think of your thoughts as weight, you know, and at first when you put on a backpack with mm -hmm. one, with one book in it, not very heavy, right? At first, but if you carry around that backpack all week and you don't take it off, by the end of the week, your back is killing you. And that's kind of the same way of these thoughts in our head, that the more attention we give them, the more we allow them to carry with us through life, mm -hmm. the more stressed we become. And it's not that that problem has gotten any bigger. It's not that that backpack has gotten any bigger. It hasn't gotten any heavier. It's just that you've allowed it to to stick around and that's been weighing on your ability to really um, sure. see yeah. through, you know, see through the light. And so let's talk about your relationship with money, Todd. I'm curious and also feel free to share any anecdotes of growing up with me in the house, um, <laughs> like how that was influential to you in a good way, bad way. Tell us about your money mantra as a young person making a, you know, money for yourself as entrepreneurially and maybe growing up with immigrant parents. Tell us a little bit about how you have derived a money mantra of yours. <laughs> okay. I guess, okay, so like, you know, growing up with mom and dad, they were very, <clears throat> I, I would say that, at least for me, like I always had to validate myself in some way in order to receive something. You know, like I, I, I think especially mom or she wouldn't really, like if I wanted a video game, you know, like I was nine years old, whatever it was, right? Or I wanted to do something. She had me first accomplish something. You know, so like whether it was like get an A on a test or dad would give me like a math project to finish. Um, I think they just taught me the value of accomplishing something before you receive a reward. Um, that money has to be received once you've accomplished something. Almost almost like a, rather than actually having us do real chores, they just made us do math problems, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like they intellectually stimulated us in order to receive rewards, you know, rather than doing like labor. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I never thought of it that way because education was so important in our household that uh, maybe even to a fault, you know, our parents really emphasize education, higher education, PhDs, my, our dad's a PhD, that that was their path to wealth. Whereas yeah. today, I don't know if that's a hundred percent 
the same, you know, that back then you could get a PhD and not go into debt. It's well, I don't I don't think it's I mean, it makes sense. You know, I mean, they didn't know better about they didn't know what the economy would be one day. You know? It made uh, sense during their time. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so going. So I would say the mantra would be. Uh, so sorry to cut you off. The mantra for me would be: It's not about what you deserve; it's about what you can negotiate. So for me, yeah. I think growing up, I had to negotiate everything with mom. You know, I, I live. <laughs> I live by that. I actually. Yeah. Um, I say that all the time. I say that all the time. I think particularly important for women. You know, as we talk about the gender wage gap. Yes, there are a lot of people out there who believe men should get paid more, and if you work for one of those people. That's terrible. But at the same time, whether you're talking about money or anything, like no one's going to offer you anything unless you ask for it. I mean, generally speaking, you know, that's kind of how the way the world works. And I think I got that lesson, too, out of our Mm -hmm. parents. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of growing up, what would you say is your uh, biggest money memory? Do you have a memory about growing up where money was involved, whether it was how you spent an allowance, how you earned money at one point, or even if you wanted to talk about your exposure to money as our parents dealt with it. You know, I remember you weren't even born yet, but I would remember going with mom to Macy's where mm-hmm. she would go and pay off her credit card bill from Macy's every month. And this is before like online bill payment. She would actually go to there, pay it off, uh, and she would do this and she wouldn't allow herself to shop there until the bill was paid. So I didn't really know what was going on. And then I also remember dad taking me to the bank and we would pull up to this like ATM, but it had a person in it and they would always give me a lollipop. So I always like, I always liked going to the bank because <laughs> it meant getting candy. Just, you know, visions of money when I was growing up. How about you? I don't, honestly, I don't have any particular memory of lessons with money with mom and dad as, as much. Uh, and that's probably to a fault, you know, I didn't <laughs> like, I didn't really come away with much lessons. I mean, to be honest, you were setting most of the example with money because you were like, I was in high school and you were writing books about it already, you know? And so I think like, I think just through that naturally I gained some sort of education on how to handle mm-hmm. money. I don't think mom and dad really had much of a talk with me. Um, and maybe that's cause I just because by, you know, being your younger brother, like I, I was, I wasn't making too many irresponsible decisions with money. You know, I guess I was like scared of like mm-hmm. making a mistake because I knew like I should know better, you know, at, the, at that point. Um, I remember though yeah. you like selling, you would like you, you got a car when you were, we had different economies growing up, by the way. When I was your age, like let's say when I was 10, when you were 10, um, versus when you were 10, we had a much different economic situation in the Tarabi family. My parents, our parents got wealthier and more established um, as the years went on. And by the time you were in high school and college, it was a different situation. And by the time I was out of the house, it was a different situation. So I remember though, like when you got the car in 16 or 17, um, you at one point sold it, right? Like you were always selling things. I remember you would get things and then you would sell them. I don't know if you had buyer's remorse or you just liked the art of the sale. No, I think uh, I was really spoiled in high school. I think when I got to college and I was around people who didn't have as much as I had and I, you know, it's kind of your first glimpse of like what being amongst a lot of strangers is like, you know, and just understanding the diversity of like where people come from and you, you know, you kind of look at yourself a little bit and. I think for me, like, yeah, I sold the car because I was, I didn't feel like I really deserved that car. It was a little bit of guilt, you know, Hmm. Um, and just a lot of things like that. I I just started feeling like I need to take more charge of myself. Like, that's when I started that concert business in college. Like, I wanted to be more independent with my money. Yeah, you, by the way, audience, Todd has started a lot of mini businesses that did not thrive, but I think through those experiences, (laughs) I mean... Most people don't start anything. You started a lot of little things that I think were learning lessons for you and ultimately helped you identify opportunities better when you were now in your 20s. Yeah, in college, like I started this this uh, concert business. Actually, one thing I learned about money then was not to 
uh, start a business account with someone you don't trust 100%. And who told you that <laughs> before you even opened up the account? Uh-huh. Yeah, you. But, you yeah. know, so like, for example, you know, we were, we had this business and then my friend, he decided to take money out of our account to invest it in some like equity or some stock. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I mean, I don't you can't expect much more from like a 19 year old. But that really sabotaged me. I was just like, mm-hmm. I can't believe too trustworthy. Someone- yeah. Yeah, it kind of taught me you need to really work with people you trust, have rules, have like guidelines. I didn't have any of that, you know. And so, so would you say that was your biggest financial failure to date? I would say so. Yeah, I mean, now I'm so I think of that all the time. You know, I, I, I since then I've, you know, for me it was like, um, pretty traumatic because you trust someone so much to you know work with. And then they would do something like that without telling you, and it just kind of makes you reevaluate, uh, you know, who do, who to trust. How you know, do you work with friends? Do you not work with friends? You know, and because it jeopardized our friendship, you know. And so, I just saw this kind of thing much differently. And even till today, I still work with my friend, but there, it's just much more communication. There's a lot more. We you know, we've set rules for each other. You know, so it's it's much uh, easier to trust someone like that when there's guidelines. What's your so money moment, Todd? Do you have one? Like a time in your in your young life that you've felt financially accomplished in some way and you know, it doesn't have to be you made all this money, but something that you did that you're proud of. I remember, if I may say something, at one point mom and you were having a conversation about how she wanted to help support you in New York with helping you with rent. And you said, no, I want to be able mm-hmm. to do this on my own. And I thought that was really cool because I would have taken their money and ran. <laughs> yeah. I would, I knew that in my 20s I was poor and any help I would welcome. But you yeah. didn't want that for yourself for some reason. I mean, I think that's very exemplary. So uh, that could be your story or you could tell, share another one, a different one. But that's yeah. one I like. Yeah. I mean, briefly, that one, I mean, I think it was uh, – I think I was just – I was out of that – technology program, General Assembly, I was freelancing a lot. So I wasn't making, you know, any money really working for these like small startups. And, uh, yeah, I didn't have, I couldn't afford paying rent on my own, but I almost wanted to have that responsibility so I could just feel more empowered and, and more motivated to actually, you know, like find a great job or, or to actually make money, you know, it's kind of like this thing, you know, you have to pay for every month. And I knew that that would be good for me. Like I I would have this pressure on me to, um, pay rent. And I know that kind of sounds odd for, (laughs) for someone who's just offered by their parents to pay their rent. But like, you know, I think with paying for your own stuff and taking responsibility for your money, um, it gives you a lot of power and, and you feel more in control of your life. You know, I think if, if mom and dad were still paying for my rent, um, you know, that comes with a lot of baggage, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I, and I knew that, you know, I was 22 and, I, you know, I was on the, on the brink of finding a full-time job and I didn't, I didn't find any reason why that should still happen, you know, but I would say the most, probably most recently the So Money moment was probably this partnership with Petrolicious just because the negotiation was really complicated uh, because, you know, we were essentially like merging our own little small business with theirs. And it wasn't just like a strict salary negotiation. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of like intellectual property rights or not property rights, but intellectual rights and, and ownership rights and, and equity stuff. And that was way above my head. You know, like I had to really reach out to people, understand how all this works. Um, and, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, it, it taught me a lot about negotiating and how, um, you know, if initially, if I didn't look into any of that stuff, I would have probably gotten a really bad offer, you know, and, uh, and I always say, like, you know, my friends say, well, should I ask for equity? Should I not ask for equity? To me, equity is not, sure, you can say it's not worth anything today, but I think what it really does is it gives you especially in my generation, you know, so many people want that ability to make decisions and to be involved in bigger decisions and more creative decision making. And I think equity kind of gives you that seat. And so if you're working for a small company or you're about to accept a job offer from a startup, I think it's really important to value equity because it all of a sudden makes you 
a decision maker. You know, you you own part of that company, and your um, experience just, there changes dramatically because of that. So there's there's some intrinsic value there. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, if if I didn't negotiate equity or you know, if my friends don't, I mean, they're not going to be involved in the higher level decisions. They're not going to be able to even have an opinion about it, you know. Um, and that's really invaluable. You know, whether this company makes money or not, or, you know, that's irrelevant. I think the for someone like me, my age, uh, I think what's going to help in the long run is that I had some exposure to that. You know, I, I like, I'm able to contribute to something about like advertising or marketing or you know, even even now we're raising money. You know, I have some sort of influence on like what that should feel, like, what mm. that should look like. Right. So stuff like that, it's really cool. You know, I, I mean, I'm not the decision maker, but I I have a um, I can contribute, and so um, so that's that's really good. I think that I'd say most recently that's been the biggest. Um, that's probably been the best decision to yeah. just value equity in a negotiation. I like that. It puts you put that in a perspective that I don't normally think of when I think of having equity. It's not just, well, you get to cash in once the company, if the company ever has a sale, but you're talking more about the access that it gives you into the company's mm-hmm. inner workings, which you can take with you uh, and it's invaluable and it's almost like a, a net, getting an MBA <laughs> while you have a, oh, yeah. a whole other job. Yeah. So let's talk about habits. You are, you're way better at think sticking to habits than I am, you know, using like the meditation as in one example, I don't make time for anything consistently like that in my life. I should. What is a financial habit that you have that you practice? It doesn't have to be daily, but it's consistent and it's conscious that you practice that helps you directly with your money. I would say that the most recent habit I picked up is, um, I linked all my bank accounts to mint.com. You like mint? Yeah, I really do. Uh, I think it's, you know, I don't really use all of its features, but I use a lot of their budgeting features. Mm-hmm. And so what I do, like every month, I'll set budgets for certain things. And, you know, every month it could change, right? Like, so this month I'm taking tennis lessons. So that's a new expense that I wouldn't normally have. So I'll budget for that and I'll try and decrease my budget for something else. So it, it's taught me how to uh, like compromise on certain things in order to do things that I want to do. Um, so like, let, for example, you know, tennis lessons costs, whatever, $200 a month. And so I'll reduce that from like my restaurant budget, you know? And so I'll go out less because of that. So it's a really easy way to track your expenses. Well, what kind of, uh, how expensive is it to be 25 in New York city? (laughs) I mean, it's been a while since I've been there and I don't think it's gotten any better since I was 24, 25 in New York city. But how do you how do you not go into debt? I mean, honestly, it's got to be a lot of conscious budgeting. Otherwise, you could easily. I mean, you're, yeah. think about your friends. Are they all struggling? Well, you know, me and my friends, we always say, and I think James Altucher said this. He said, <clears throat> um, I don't know, actually, actually, I don't know if it was you or him. <laughs> I don't know which one of you said it. But he basically said, uh, if you want to spend more money, don't save more, just make more. And like, mm-hmm. as much, you know, you have to do both. But I think for us, like, we've been pretty aggressive in terms of like negotiating a raise or finding other sources of income. So for example, like my, my roommate bartends, my other roommate sells his art. You know, me, I, I teach on like twice a week. So it's like this extra income that, you know, encompasses something that we like to do and it helps us afford everything that yeah afford a lifestyle that we want here right and i would say to live here it completely depends on like your expectations you know and also the cost of your rent uh like our my rent right now is not too bad but i have friends that pay double what i pay and so it really straps them in terms of you know whether they want to go out or go to a concert you know they're not able to do that um and i think it's just about priority like do you want to be it's about your lifestyle choice. Do you want to be someone who goes out a lot or do you value being home and like watching Netflix on a comfortable living room, you know? <laughs> so like if you value the, mm-hmm. the comfortable living room, it's like, all right, well then pay 2000 a month, you know? But if you don't care, then pay half of that and mm-hmm. just either save your money or, 
you know, use it to go to that concert every month or, you know, Knicks game. Sounds like someone read You're So Money. Yeah, I, I read it. Even when you're not. Every, <laughs> every year I read it. <laughs> you're um, such a liar. But thanks yeah. for saying that. Um, yeah. But I agree with you. And I would say even when you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s that – Sometimes it's an income problem. You know, it's it's you, you can save till the cows come home and you're still not able to feel like you're living a content lifestyle. And so at that point or even just a oh, not living paycheck to paycheck. So at that point, you need to look at your what you're bringing in. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a great tip. All right. Let's do some so money fill in the blanks. OK. OK. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say 100 million bucks. The first thing I would do is. Hmm. Uh, I would definitely see. Okay, a lot of people donate money. Like, like a lot of people say they would donate something, but for me, I feel like I would start something that is you know related to community service. Like I've always said, like I like I have a soft spot for homeless people. Like I I don't know. I always I I tend to <laughs> that's like a budget mm-hmm. on my mint account is to like pay like you know give money to like unfortunate people. I feel like. If I made that much money, I would for sure start like a shelter for them. I just feel like it's uh, something that's important to me. I would I don't like seeing that. Um, I would start organizations around it rather than just donating to someone else. I would mm-hmm. I would feel like it it'd be cooler to have responsibility to run something like that. That'd, hmm. that'd be interesting to me. I mean, it's a lot of money, right? Hundred million dollars. Like you could you could you do, could a, do lot. a lot I mean, of things. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. So part of it would be to start your own foundation. I like that or shelter. Yeah. What one expense that makes my life easier or better or both is? So I'm a big sports fan, like football, basketball, baseball, and uh, I spend a lot on going to those games. I would say. Um, That's right. Says the guy who went to the Super Bowl. Yeah. So. <laughs> Forgot before about you that. judge me. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I for like I knew I was like okay. There's a. The Patriots were doing really well last year. I was like, there's a very high chance that I just, you know, make a very irrational decision and go to one of these games, these playoff games or the Super Bowl. So I literally did a web design project. I freelanced for this like small company and I saved that money just in case that I would go to to a game. And so back in my mind, I was like, all right, I have this like small extra income. The Patriots have meant so much to me since I was like nine years old, eight years old. So, you know, why not? (laughs) <laughs> you know, and like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's important to me, like a lot of people spend that kind of money on a vacation or whatever. But that was just like, that was my vacation. And I got to go to Phoenix and uh, see my friends from college and stuff. So it was really good. And I honestly, I would go again, if they make it again this year, I'd consider going again. <laughs> so that's like my, that's an expense that is really uh, important to me. Like sports is a big part of my social life and like just hobby. And I, I, um, I generally don't mind splurging on that. So that answers the next one, which sometimes these two fill in the blanks. Uh, mix. They mix and they are often the same answer. So I would say you would say that this is also your biggest splurge. Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's definitely even at the game. You know, like I went to a Rangers game last night and like, I don't know. I just I just feel like if I'm going to go to this game, like I might as well like do it big. <laughs> you know, Go big or go home. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I don't go to many. And so I don't know, it's, it's important to me. It's like. Uh, you know, it's a way to bring my get my friends involved, and like, it, it, so mm-hmm. it, it's a big part of what I like. And to it's do. a great conversation starter. <laughs> yeah. And who knows what you'll see or meet at these parties, at these events? I should say, not parties, sporting events. You know, we we were joking before you left for the Super Bowl. Like, you better bring business cards. <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> yeah. you know, the it's- people who go to these things, they're probably you know they have influence or they are successful and they're. Uh, you know, or at the very least, they have similar interests, so you should keep in touch. What is okay? So here's the next one. The one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is hmm, uh, learning about money. I would say just how hard it is to make money, <clears throat> like in general. I think that's part of the problem with millennials. Actually, to, to go back to an earlier question, it's like we have these young entrepreneurs like running these companies and selling their companies within like a year. I mean, like Instagram was started by a couple of people my age, and they sold it within a year. Almost all these new tech companies are are created and sold within such a short amount of time, and they make so much money out of it. And so, like, we grow up with the impression that money is somewhat easy to make. You know. Um, to be honest, even my own some of my own motivation in getting involved in tech and design was that like 
you know, like I, I can create something quickly and pr- provide value, financial value, particularly very quickly. And I think that if with that mentality, you burn out a little bit faster than you'd think, because that's not really the reality of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for me, if I had a different impression of how hard it is to actually like first create value and then second to make money, I think I would have just been more patient with myself and, you know, just been more present with like what I'm doing, been more satisfied with what I'm doing, feel more purposeful because I, you know, I don't feel like I'm insignificant in some way just because I'm not making money fast enough. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember that conversation either so much as like, you know, although I will say that dad was the one who really encouraged me to ask for raises in my jobs. Uh, whereas I was, would have, I would have just been happy to be there. <laughs> I was just happy to get the job. But he was like, talk about, did you ask him about the benefits? Did you ask him if they could give you more money? And I'm like, I don't really want to have that conversation with them. And he's like, <laughs> no, you should. And you know, this should be part of your, just part of your dialogue as you're going from job to job. So thanks dad. And last but not least, I'm Todd to Robbie. I'm so money because. I'm so money because, uh, I feel like I'm able to separate my work from my self-esteem <laughs> like mm-hmm. that your work you know, doesn't de- I, doesn't define your self-worth right it doesn't define me and I think uh maybe that's been the biggest change in me this year is that I've been able to separate the two and I think that's really difficult particularly for me it was very difficult and then also just people I see my friends or whoever they tend to really associate their their value their self-worth to like what they can create or what or what their job is and I think that a lot of times that's why this question of meaning and purpose comes up so often you know and it's it in it provides a lot of anxiety and worrying but I think if you can separate yourself from your job and and kind of learn more about yourself and do things you enjoy doing I think a lot of those questions are answered for yourself. Great way to end this uh, interview. Thanks so much, Todd. I learned a lot about you. It's nice to be able to catch up with your bro on a podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, and I know uh, mom and dad will be really f- excited to listen to this. So if no one else listens to this episode, at least they will <laughs> and they'll be happy. Thanks so much. And I'll see you at Thanksgiving. Yep. See you later. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Todd, his website, toddtarabi.com. He's also on Twitter, at Todd Tarabi. All of this, including the transcript and comments, available at somoneypodcast.com. And there you can also ask me a question. Click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question for the Friday episodes. I want to know what you're thinking about. Because, in fact, in 2016, I hope to come out with a nice, cool program for all my listeners, a sort of supplement to the podcast, something where we can continue engaging, continue learning. But in order to realize what that product should be, I need to know what you need. What is your most pressing financial concern, issue, question? We want to incorporate all that in uh, in the program in 2016. All right. So send me your questions and your thoughts. Looking forward to hearing from you. And as always, hope your day is so money. So money.